If you consider the people in history who have made a difference in this world for good, you will notice two common themes. The first theme is that they were different than the people around them. The second theme is that they paid a price for being different. Whether it was someone like Martin Luther who started the Reformation, or Galileo who is known as the the father of modern science, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Mother Teresa. All of these made a tremendous difference in the world for good, but they paid a price for it. Now, we may never impact history to the degree that these have, but we can make a significant difference in this world. But if we choose to make a difference, we're going to have to be the right kind of different, and then we're going to have to be willing to pay the price to be different. Now, if you follow Jesus Christ, you are following the biggest difference maker to ever walk this earth. And like every difference maker, he was different, and he paid a price for it. Now, as his followers, he calls us to follow him in the kind of difference that he brings in this world. We are using the New Testament book of 1 Peter to guide our understanding of how to be different in the right kind of way. Today, we come to a set of verses that outline the price of being different. They are really a warning about the three ways that people avoid the cost of being different. Now, we're going to apply these to followers of Christ, to Christians, but really these are the same three reasons why most people don't change the world. So the first kind of Christian that will not change the world is the isolated Christian. They go it alone and rarely sacrifice for anything bigger. The simple fact is you cannot change the world all by yourself. I mean, pick any world changer, and you will find behind that one name a team, a bunch of names that made the impact of the name that we know so well even possible, names that you might have to do research to even find, some names that no one will ever know because they labored in obscurity. There are a lot of people that would love to change the world, but there are not many people that are willing to join a team. Why? Well, because you have to follow, and there's no glory in following. The greatest world-changing team in history was started by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. It's described this way in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we come to Jesus Christ, we discover that he really is like a stone. Now, he's not the solitary, boulder kind of stone that's standing there on the landscape of history for us to admire. He's a foundation kind of stone, the foundation of what's referred to here as a spiritual house. He's the one on whom we can build our lives and that we can trust that the lives that are built on him will stand the test of time. So he's not just a good man with some good ideas. He is a living stone. And as such, that means that he is a timeless foundation. His life and him as a foundation is not dated because he's a living stone. It's not that he's someone that would be good to follow 2,000 years ago when he was a contemporary, but even today, and especially today, he is the foundation that we can build our lives on because he's a living stone. It also means he's alive to help us build. He's a living stone. Now, a lot of people have rejected Jesus as the foundation for their lives, as it says here, but that does not change the fact that he is God's chosen one. He is the chosen foundation for our lives. 
and he is precious in God's sight and a precious gift to us. Now, you don't lay a foundation unless you intend to build something on top of that foundation. So what is it to, to be built on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ, the living stone? Well, it's referring to the church. That is the spiritual house. As it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So Jesus is not the foundation of a, a bunch of individual lives that are being constructed on him. He really is the foundation of a lot of individual lives that are together being woven and built into a spiritual house, a church. Now, the Greek word that's used here for stone was the word that was used for a particular kind of stone. It was a building stone. This was not just a rock laying on the ground, but this was a rock that had been chiseled into a particular shape for a specific part of the building project. And this points to the fact why isolation destroys our great potential. Because we are created by God not to be like individual sculptures to be put on display like this great statue of David by Michelangelo. We're, we're not just individual stones that, to be chiseled away so that we can be impressive. We really are like stones that are designed to be fit into a larger building project. By ourselves, we are not able to realize our full potential, therefore. So really, as you look out on the world, as you look at people, you're really looking kind of like at a construction yard with all kinds of stones that are ready to be placed in a construction project. Stacks of stones waiting to be built together. Now, we have been getting a good lesson in recent days about what the church is about. We are not a location on Gothard that is now closed. That is where we meet. But we are a spiritual house made up of followers of Jesus Christ who are doing our part in changing the world. And because we're a spiritual house, you can't close a spiritual house. Now, the church is a semi-stable spiritual house. It's stable because of the cornerstone that it's built on. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. That, that's what brings stability to the church. And as such, the church can never really be destroyed. And the church can never be counted out. But it's semi-stable because the material that rests on the cornerstone is us. As it says, we are also like living stones. We are not the living stone, but we also have a living stone kind of quality to us. Now, stones are a common building material because they're solid and, and they don't change and they can take a lot of pressure. But a living stone is, is different than a, a dead stone. We are living stones, and what that means is we are constantly changing. We are constantly growing. We are constantly failing and recovering. So what that makes the church is somewhat less impressive because when you look at the church, you see people like us. Now, what you can't see is the foundation. It's the precious cornerstone of Jesus Christ that gives the church its power and its stability. So the first reason that many Christians will not change the world is they go it alone, and they miss the church. They may attend church, but they don't adjust their lives so that they can fit in and be a key part of a church, and therefore they don't make the impact that God designed for them to make in changing the world. The second kind of Christian that won't change the world is the irritated Christian. This is the Christian that gets upset at all that's wrong in the world, and particularly individuals and people in the world. And they get madder and madder, and they, over time, they develop an arrogant attitude towards people. Now, how does that happen? 
Well, it begins with their decision to follow Jesus Christ, which is a great decision. And that decision begins to change them, which is also great. But then eventually over time, they begin to take the change personally, and they begin to think that they really are better than other people who aren't as changed as they are. Now, the decision to follow Jesus Christ is contrasted with the decision to not follow Jesus Christ in the next few verses. Here's what we read in 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to you who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now there, you may have noticed the quotations around several of the passages. There are three quotations that come from three prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament in these verses. In each of these, Jesus is referred to as a different kind of stone. He's referred to as a cornerstone, then he's referred to as a capstone, and then he's referred to as a stumbling stone, a stone that people trip over and fall down over. Now, the three stones that are mentioned in these three prophecies speak of the two different decisions that people make about Jesus Christ. The first stone references the decision to follow Jesus Christ. The last two stones reference the decision to not follow Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first one. This is a quote from the prophecy of Isaiah 28, verses 16. It says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, that's speaking of Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In ancient times, a cornerstone was the first stone that was laid in a structure. And it was called the cornerstone because all of the other stones were placed in reference to that stone. So to the believer of Jesus Christ, what this is saying is Jesus is the primary reference point for the building, the building and constructing of their lives. So the decision to follow Jesus Christ is not just an intellectual decision. It is really a life-building decision. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ makes their decisions in life, they are continually referencing back to Jesus Christ and what he says on the matter. He is their cornerstone, their point of reference. And then like a wall that is built layer by layer over time, the follower of Jesus Christ makes their decisions day by day, week by week, year by year, and the layers of their life are built over time. And as they make decisions, more and more weight is placed on the cornerstone, on Jesus Christ. And those who decide to trust in Jesus Christ, it says, they will never be put to shame. What they have built over the years will never fail. It will never crumble. It will never crack because the cornerstone is stable. Now, for me personally, I've spent the better part of 40 years building with Jesus as my reference point, as my cornerstone. Now, I certainly have not built perfectly, and nobody does. I've often had to go back and clean up messes and maybe knock down some of what I've constructed and and rework some things. But it would be a huge tragedy and waste of my life for me to discover that Jesus was not the one true cornerstone, to discover that all that I've built really wasn't right and it was wrong and it's now not going to count for anything. That would be a tremendous shame. But what this is saying is that is never going to happen to those who decide to build their lives on Jesus Christ. They'll never be put to shame. They'll never wish that they had not done it. They will be grateful for every decision they made that referenced Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. The second stone that's mentioned in the second prophecy is the capstone. Here's what it says. 
But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is a quote from Psalm 118.22. A cornerstone is the first stone in a building project. A capstone, on the other hand, is the last stone in a building project. Here's a picture of a capstone that is sitting on the top. So what this is saying is if, if we reject Jesus as cornerstone, we will then eventually discover him as capstone. The point is this. Those who reject Jesus now and don't believe him, they will eventually believe in Jesus Christ, but it will be at the end of the project, at the end of time, when it's too late to build their lives at all. They will recognize him at the end, not at the beginning, not when there's a chance to make decisions and build a life. Now, this decision, this decision to reject Jesus is not a, oops, I got the wrong answer on a test kind of mistake. This will be a trip and fall off a cliff, life-ending kind of mistake. And that's what's referenced in the third quotes, the third prophecy. It says, for them, the stone, it'll be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is Isaiah 8, 14. So for many people, Jesus will be like that stone on the path that they just don't see and end up tripping over and they end up falling down. So if Jesus is your cornerstone, it means that you are now beginning to build your life based on what's important to him. And so as the layers of your decisions grow over time, you become more and more different from the people who have made a different decision about Jesus. And you become, as 1 Peter often says, aliens and strangers in this world. And that begins to create an unease and sometimes a tension because the same stone that you are building on is the stone that other people have decided to reject. And so you're a stranger here, but you're not a, a stranger like a tourist in a fun country. You're more like an American flag waving uh, that flag in Iran. You, you represent a very opposite decision, a negative decision in their mind. And so one of the ways that Christians tend to defend and respond to this increasing tension or difference is they become arrogant. They begin to, to look down on people who have not made the decision they've made about Jesus Christ. And that's why the next couple of verses address the attitude that, that tends to rise in followers of Jesus Christ if they're not careful. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So why this reminder about the mercy of God? Well, it's because arrogance flows out of a heart that has forgotten how it got where it is. So it says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are actually a part of God's royal court it's talking about. You're a royal priesthood. You are part of the people that represent God in this world now. Why do we get this privilege? Well, it's because of God's mercy. One day we were bumping around in the dark, but now we've, we've stepped into the light and we're learning how to live. Why did that happen? Because of the brilliance of our thinking? No. God personally called us out of the darkness into the light. He personally turned the light on for us. So there's no basis for arrogance. If you're bumping around in a dark room and you can't find the light switch and someone else does and they turn the light on, there's no reason for you to be arrogant that now you can see. You need to be grateful. 
And that's the point of this. So why are you different? Why am I different than those who have decided not to follow Jesus Christ? Well, it was all God's doing. It was a gift. Why did God do this? Why did he call us out of darkness into light? Did he do it so that we might get irritated and look down on everyone else who didn't do that? No, of course not. He did this so that, as it says here, we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness, who did all of this for us. So arrogance has no place. Arrogance calls attention to itself. It says, look at me. But the attitude we need to have in light of God's mercy is humility. Humility declares the praises of God. It it points to him, the one who turned the light on, not us. It looks at what has happened and says to people, you know, all I know is that God has helped me with this, or he's forgiven me for that. And if he hadn't, I don't know what would happen to me. My life would be an even worse mess than it is right now. So how can you tell if arrogance is rising in your heart? Usually other people can tell, but it's really hard for an individual to tell, you know, I think I'm growing in arrogance. Well, thankfully, arrogance comes with a warning light. The warning indicator of arrogance is irritation. When irritation rises in your heart, there's a good chance you're looking down on somebody. So when you feel the irritation mount, go back and remember how you got where you are and thank God and humble yourself. And that brings us to the third kind of Christian that will not make a change in this world, and that is the immature Christian. The immature Christian is unwilling to pay the ongoing price that it takes to grow and become the kind of person that God uses to change the world. We cannot tweet to change the world. No matter how true the statement is, it doesn't change the world. And that's because God uses people to change the world. People of character change history. You know, we think that maybe you need to be famous to change history. Now, of course, some world changers are famous. But usually it's because of the impact they've made. But long before they were famous, they were working away in obscurity to become the kind of person that God uses to bring good and long-lasting change in this world. So the last two verses that we're going to look at today outline the top three reasons that personal growth and maturity is stunted in the follower of Christ. Here's what these verses say, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Three growth killers are pointed to in these two verses. The first growth killer is a desire to be popular. One of the top reasons people stop growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ is they start following what everyone else around them is doing. And what that means is all of the effort that it takes to grow is now diverted into the continual and honestly exhausting effort to be cool or to be liked. They end up following the herd wherever it's rumbling now and wherever it's grazing. So this is why Peter urges us to be aliens and strangers in this world. The reason is because we are all aliens and strangers in this world, but particularly as Christians, we are now even stranger because we are living among the pagans, it says. This is not a derogatory term. This is simply an identifier. The word pagan, pagan means without God. And that's always been the dominant culture of the world. 
people always have tended to make decisions without referencing God. So what that means is what usually is popular is not what it means to grow. So if you want to grow as a Christian, you're going to have to be willing to be unpopular. Now, many people have decided they really want both. They want to grow and mature as a Christian, and they want to be liked by the culture. Now, that works fine until they come to a moral dilemma where Jesus says, this is good and right, and the culture says, no, it isn't. This is good and right. And it's in those moments that the desire to be popular or liked kicks in, and they go quiet. And what happens in that moment is almost imperceptible to them. But in that moment, they become just a little bit more like the culture and a little bit less like the kind of person that Jesus wants them to become. And in the process, their growth is stunted, and with it, their impact. Growth killer number two is the desire to sin. Now, this maturity stopper is an obvious one. In one of his parables, Jesus said that the sinful desires of our hearts are like weeds that just keep growing, and they end up taking the nutrients away from the seed of God's Word that is designed to change us and to grow us. So, like we do with the weeds in our garden, we just have to keep weeding. We have to keep pulling up and resisting these desires. Or as it says in this verse, we have to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So make no mistake, the war against our sinful desires is a war. And there are victories and there are failures. And right when you feel like you've been good enough to deserve a three-day pass from sinful desires, the, the war flares up and the desires come up. Now many people think that they can negotiate some kind of a truce with their simple desires by giving in maybe just a little bit or pondering or thinking about it for just a little while. But sin never backs down. It never lays down its weapons. And so this war gets exhausting and discouraging over time. And that brings us to growth killer number three, and that is the desire to coast, to take it easy. We get tired eventually of making hard and unpopular choices. And we get tired of the fight against our desire to sin. Now, we usually don't want to just punt following Jesus altogether. So we just kind of want to take a break. We, we want to coast for a while. We want to focus on whatever we want. And this is why it makes this statement in this verse. We need to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So someone who does not lead a God-reference life, they look at the decisions we make and they say, that's wrong. They accuse us of doing wrong. But when God visits, by the time that God shows up to wrap up history, they are now praising God and agreeing with what we were doing. How does that massive change occur? Well, it occurs because they've seen your good deeds, it says. Not just one good deed, not just 20 good deeds, not just 100 good deeds. They have seen you, as it says, live such good lives. Now, how long does it take to live a life? It takes a life. It takes a long time. And what this means is persistently over time, you have not coasted. And you have struggled like everyone does, but you have kept moving forward. And in the end, even someone who doesn't believe in God will have to believe, you know what? You were right in the decisions you made. Now, the desire to be popular and the desire to sin isn't just something that happens when we're younger. You know, when we are young, the desire to both be popular and the struggle with sin, the sinful desires of our heart are really significant. 
But these are struggles that we have to deal with throughout our entire life. But there is a season where the desire to coast is particularly intense. And that is when we enter into the middle and then later years of life. In his book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes imaginary letters of instruction from a demon on how to tempt us. And this particular phrase that I want to read to you has been very helpful for me, especially once I entered into middle uh, stages of life and now in, the, in my 60s. This is what it says. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather, speaking of the war for our hearts. You see, it is so hard for these creatures, speaking of us, to persevere. The routine of adversity the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair hardly felt as pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities for wearing out a soul by attrition. Now, the demon in this book, who is the recipient of these letters of instruction, panics early on in the book when the person he is assigned to tempt becomes a Christian, and he thinks all is lost. But he is told that all is not lost because of the fact that most Christians simply do not grow, and therefore they don't change much, and therefore they don't make much of a change in their world. So again, there are four types of Christians. We've talked about three of them and implied the fourth. But let's review these four kinds of Christians that were talked about in the nine verses of 1 Peter. First, there are the isolated Christians. They usually say nothing about Christ, and they make little impact. They're on their own journey. Then there are the irritated Christians. They usually say way too much. They're upset and angry a lot, and their impact is not the good kind of impact. And then there are the immature Christians. What they do say about Jesus tends to not match what they say, what they do. So they, they are the hypocrites. They're the ones that cause all kinds of problems for people and confusion. And then there are the impact Christians. They are far from perfect, but they keep moving forward. They keep growing. They keep loving the people that God puts in their lives. And they keep teeming with the church. And those are the people that God uses to change this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of being a part of the church, of being a part of what really has changed and will continue to change this world in ways that nothing else can. We thank you for the opportunity to be a part, to see that we were not created just to be individual sculptures of amazement, but really building stones, a part of what you're building, the spiritual house that you're putting together. And in this season in our world, it is so evident that this world needs so much change. And we may feel helpless in many ways to know what to do about it. But I pray you'd give us clarity about our assignment and our part and how we can join in seeing you really make an impact in this world. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.